This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. The White House now says that it supports waiving the intellectual property protections for the COVID-19 vaccines. Now, that is a move that could help speed the distribution of vaccines around the world, but is also clearly already hitting the U.S. drug manufacturers. In a statement, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai said that the U.S. is actively participating in text-based negotiations at the WTO to make this happen, though she did caution that these talks would still take time to build consensus and due to the complexity of the issues involved. The USTR also tried to reiterate that they are still working to ramp up production, manufacturing, distribution of vaccines domestically, also working on increasing the production of the raw materials needed to make the vaccines. But now the U.S. and the White House are saying that they will support waiving those patent protections and work with the WTO to make that happen. The global struggle for access to COVID-19 vaccines took a dramatic turn recently as the Biden administration in the United States unexpectedly reversed its long-standing opposition to a patent waiver designed to facilitate access to vaccines in the developing world. The shift seemingly caught many by surprise. Pharmaceutical companies were quick to voice opposition, and U.S. allies found themselves being asked to take positions. That was certainly the case in Canada where the Canadian government has steadfastly refused to support the waiver with repeated claims that it had yet to make a decision. Elinette Hoon is a lawyer and public health advocate with over 30 years of experience working on pharmaceutical and intellectual property policies. From 1999 until 2009, she was the director for Médecins Sans Frontières campaign for access to essential medicines. In 2009, she joined Unitaid in Geneva to set up the medicines patent pool. Ellen is currently the director of medicines, law, and policy, and a researcher at the University Medical Center, Groningen. She joins the podcast this week to talk about the fight for a patent waiver and the implications of the Biden decision for global access to COVID vaccines. Ellen, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. You're welcome. Yeah, no, I'm really glad that you could could join. Now, you know, we started planning for this podcast a couple of weeks ago when when public concern about vaccine access around the world was certainly mounting, and we started to see more and more calls to support the TRIPS waiver. Uh, but I, I'm not sure that we necessarily expected, or at least I didn't expect when we started this process, that the U.S. would shift its position and suddenly support the waiver. Can, can you get the podcast started a little bit by explaining the waiver issue and, and why it's been such a focal point of advocacy? Yeah, the, wave, the waiver issue refers to uh, the proposal by India and South Africa, which they made in October of last year in the TRIPS Council, that is of the World Trade Organization, that is the council that deals with intellectual property issues. And their proposal is to waive or to allow countries to waive, so sort of to suspend the protection of intellectual property related to Um, health technologies such as medicines, vaccines, diagnostic tools that are necessary to to address the the COVID-19 pandemic for the duration of the pandemic or until the majority of the world's population is is vaccinated. Uh, So that proposal is gaining support from countries, about 100 mostly developing countries or low and middle income countries 
are now supporting the um, the, the TRIPS waiver. Uh, but traditionally, um, the traditional positions of, of high-income countries also, also came into play here, who, um, who refused to, uh, to welcome the proposal and, and continue to raise um, uh, millions of, of questions uh, about it. Um, I, I think it's important to see the TRIPS waiver proposal by South Africa and India in the context, in a in more broader context of companies refusing to share their intellectual property, including know-how, uh, technology and materials that may be necessary to scale up production process, because the need for that was foreseen fairly early on in the pandemic. Uh, more than a year ago, the World Health Organization established the COVID-19 technology access pool, which offers a platform for the sharing of intellectual property. So that includes patents, uh, know-how, regulatory data, uh, clinical test data, um, uh, technologies as such, but also materials such as cell lines, for example, should that be, should that be necessary. But until Today, that pool remains empty. And of course, the developing countries looking at that said, let's, uh, let's raise this issue again at the World Trade Organization because we're not making any progress with these voluntary mechanisms and we need to have more forceful tools in our hands to, uh, to compel the transfer of that, um, of, of that knowledge and of that intellectual property. So that's sort of the background of the proposal in, uh, in October. Okay, this, uh, that's a great that's a great background. And it, it's the issue we talked about the position of high income countries here in Canada. Um, they they would be I think categorized in that same group, and and even in the last few days as it's started to attract more and more attention, still seem unwilling to take a strong position. Uh, but they've been pushed to at least reconsider where they're at, largely by the United States and a major change from the Biden administration. Can you talk a bit about uh, what they decided and the the impact that it's had? Yeah, in, in a in a surprise move, really, the uh, the United States government announced uh, that it would support a waiver of um, a, a trips waiver for vaccines. So, uh, it, with that, the the U.S. has somewhat narrowed the the proposal, uh, uh, the original proposal, but still, that is an incredibly important. Uh, political move because the United States traditionally, and no matter who who was occupying the White House, um, usually sides with the pharmaceutical companies and and drug companies could always count on the United States to defend their interests in in bodies such as the World Trade Organization. And this time around, the Biden administration has said no. There are larger issues at stake here. Um, this is about uh, global public health, uh, and, and of course. The Biden administration also understands that vaccinating people the globe over is also in the interest of uh, of Americans uh, at um, at home. Um, it it came as a uh, it came as a, as I said it came as a as a surprise. Um, we've seen very mixed uh, responses from European Union countries. Uh, the EU usually sides with the US, but the EU is internally. 
very divided. Some countries want to support the TRIPS waiver, others do not. Germany, for example, have, 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 has said very clearly no, uh, no to this. So um, just with the United States announcing that it will support a partial TRIPS waiver does not necessarily mean it will also happen. But what it has done is sent a very clear message that business as usual is not going to happen. So I expect that we will see a, a quite a bit of activity inside the TRIPS Council but also outside, because I suspect that the pharmaceutical companies also will be reviewing their strategies. Yeah, so in order to get this passed, obviously the United States is powerful uh, and important country is part of these discussions, but my understanding is it requires consensus. There's a need to bring European countries and, and countries from around the world on board to find some kind of mechanism or some kind of uh, framework, I suppose, that everybody's agreeable to. Yeah, that, that's correct. The, the the negotiations on the TRIPS waiver um, still need to commence. They have not started. There have been back and forth Q&As, questions and answers about the India-South Africa proposal, but an actual text-based negotiation has not started. But with this announcement from the United States, it is expected that that will now happen. Uh, the European Commission has said that it is willing to talk we're not quite sure how to interpret that, but that seems to indicate that it will engage in these uh, in these negotiations. Now, a concern, of course, is how long is this going to take and what will come out of it in the end? Um, we know from past experience that a diplomatic agreement at the WTO does not always mean a workable agreement uh, at the WTO in, in, in the context of, of access to medicines. We've seen in the past uh, months or years long uh, uh, negotiations and in, um, in solutions that, um, that actually do not work. So I hope that that's, that is not what we're going to see this time around. The pressure now is of course, really on. And uh, we've just seen the launch of the report of the independent panel for pandemic preparedness response. And their message, message was very clear. It said, we need licensing of the IP and the technology transfer now. And if companies continue to refuse to do that, then the TRIPS waiver needs to kick in within three months. And something like that would actually give a real push to get things moving because the reality on the ground is such that the world has production capacity for vaccines for about three and a half billion dosages, while we need 11 billion dosages to vaccinate 70% of the world population, which is the level you need to reach to, to, to really create protection at the, at the global level. So, so we're pretty far removed from that. So in, to increase that, this, transfer of technology, the sharing of the intellectual property, the sharing of the know-how, the training of people on the ground, how to do this is, is, is essential. And that needs to be stepped up. We've lost a year. Some people now say, well, it's too late. It will take too much time, but we've lost a year and I don't see why we should waste any more time. Yeah. I want to drill down on that. You know, as as the momentum around this issue picks up, not surprisingly, we've started to see some opposition, some 
certainly, as you mentioned, some from countries, but also, of course, from some of the pharmaceutical companies that were taken a bit by surprise by the by the shift and the momentum around the campaign that that started to develop now. Uh, you had a terrific piece in Barron's that highlighted some of those arguments even before the U.S. decision, and I thought it would be useful to try to unpack or examine some of the arguments. I think starting with the one that, that I think you've, you've just started to mention, the, the argument essentially that this isn't going to help argue with people arguing that this is just going to take too long, that patents are only a small part of the overall issue in getting vaccines to the developing world. We see what's taking place in, in countries around the world, most notably right now, of course, in India. Um, how do you respond to, to those that say, listen, uh, this is nice in theory, but Practically speaking, this just isn't going to make much of a difference. Well, of course, if this transfer of IP and technology had happened, had started a year ago, we would have gained that year and there would be expanded production capacity. Second, there are companies out there that have said we are willing to produce, we have capacity to do so, but we need the uh, the intellectual property agreement or we need a technology transfer and they are not getting a good, uh, a good response or they don't get a response. Um, a response at all. So there is untapped capacity that can be used. Second, um, we need to start working on creating production capacity there where it doesn't exist. That is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to get anyone to invest in that if you don't know that also the transfer of that know-how and, and IP will actually happen. So for the predictability to create new production capacity, um, this uh, this will also be this will also be very uh, very important. In fact, we need to move to a situation where the norm, the global norm, becomes if you have um, the knowledge the know-how, the IP to produce a COVID-19 vaccine, then you share that with others. That is not something that you can own. Now, such a proposal can only fly, of course, if there's also continued uh, public financing for the development of these vaccines, which has been very much the case this time around. You, see, you hear some companies say they're going to steal our intellectual property and we've taken all this risk to develop these, these, these drugs and we've invested in it. That is simply not true. The investment for the development of these COVID-19 vaccines have come from the public sector. Almost 90 billion um, uh, dollars has been has been spent. Uh, no euros, actually, it's more in dollars. Has been spent on the development of these vaccines. So to then expect and 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 ask for the knowledge that is is created with that financing to be shared more widely for the well-being of humanity as a whole is not an unreasonable request. You know, it's amazing to hear the, the, the amount of public dollars that's gone into this. There's, of course, such an urgency around the world to address the issue. And, and that sometimes gets forgotten as part of these discussions. You know, the, the response, in part, from the, from the companies will focus on some of those issues about if you don't provide us with the IP, if we don't have those IP rights and we're forced to share, uh, where is innovation going to come from? Uh, and of course, you know, this is a, a line that we've heard for a very long time around trying to make a connection between patents and innovation. Uh, how do you respond when, when people raise this issue of will we lose the incentives, will we lose the innovation if we move towards the kind of sharing formula that you've just identified? 
Yeah, the argument, this will harm innovation, is sort of the knee-jerk, almost robotic response um, that you get um, when you raise uh, questions of intellectual property related to med medicines. I've been working in this field now for more than 30 years, and I've heard it for 30 years, no matter what the circumstances. But if you look at the circumstances here, um, that argument absolutely does not fly because the risk that companies often take in developing new drugs, the financial risk this time around has been carried almost entirely by the public sector. And I would like to add that that is a very good thing. I think that is something to continue to advocate for. When we advocate for the freeing up the intellectual property. If we want vaccines that aren't owned by anyone, if we want vaccines that are not covered by monopolies, we also have to advocate for continued public investment in the development of these uh, of these vaccines. And I think that that is actually a very reasonable proposal. And we've seen in the last year a very effective um, proposal because it is because of the financing and the initial openness and data sharing of the world of science, because the scientists that worked on this have, have worked together a lot and have shared a lot and, and sort of almost in real time data and knowledge was shared. But as soon as that data and knowledge gets translated into a marketable product, those doors close and all of a sudden it becomes proprietary. And that is the bit that we really need to need to lose. But again, in this argument that this will harm innovation really doesn't fly because what made the innovation happen was uh, was the, the, the vast amounts of public financing. Okay, interesting. And certainly in, in some of the stuff that I focus on, whether on copyright um, or open access related issues, you hear some of the same kinds of arguments. And of course, on open access issues, once again, there's large amounts of public expenditures that go into, into the research. And, and I think the quite reasonable argument is the public uh, ought to have access to the kinds of things that it's invested in. There's also certainly been some discussion about the quality of the vaccines. You know, the companies argue how challenging it is to create these vaccines. And they say, listen, it's not so simple just to provide the, the basic patents or some of that other kind of information. There's almost no way they would argue to ensure the quality of the vaccines, uh, that, those kinds of assurances. You know, what's, what's your view on that argument? Well, this is um, th this is a very important point to address because if you want to make a vaccine that has regulatory approval by by the, the, the Canadian authorities or the U.S. FDA or or the European Medicines Agency, uh, you you indeed cannot do that by just having access to the patents. You need to have the direct tech transfer from the company that holds the regulatory file, and that is why. CTAP, that is why the COVID-19 technology access pool is so important because that would have exactly offered that. So with just the patents, uh, you wouldn't be there because if that was the case, we would have had a, a, a tsunami of compulsory licenses by now. You need the know-how, you need the playbook, you need to know the steps to take to develop that particular vaccine. So that is... Um, uh, when if companies say um, we can't do this because we have quality concerns, well, that is precisely the aspect that they can actually help address. Second, uh, you do not assure quality by having proprietary products. It isn't patents that 
protect the quality. It is the quality assurance mechanisms that do that. And at the global level, the World Health Organization has a program for that. There's a pre-qualification program for vaccines, including for COVID-19 vaccines, and companies can supply their full dossier to the WHO. The WHO, if necessary, will also do site visits and visit the manufacturing uh, plants where these vaccines are made and approve or not approve the, um, the vaccine. And um, that WHO approval is a condition to be eligible, for example, for, uh, for global supply through COVAX or global supply by, by UNICEF, for example. So these quality assurance mechanisms exist. And if you can have the, the, the IP transfer and the tech transfer go hand in hand with those quality assurance mechanisms, that can work very, very well. We have that experience in the field of HIV. The medicines patent pool, in a way, works like that. There, it's a bit simpler because, in general, you can produce antiretroviral medicines, the medicines needed to treat, treat HIV, um, if you have uh, if you have a patent license or if the patent doesn't doesn't exist. But the quality assurance is done through the WHO pre-qualification program that then gives the confidence to buyers the globe over that they can uh, they can spend their money on those medicines and something fairly similar exists for uh, for vaccines. Okay, that historical analogy is really uh, interesting and important. You, you mentioned it a moment ago, I just wanted to, I guess, highlight it just uh, again, and that's the issue of capacity. Uh, some arguing uh, or debates around how much vaccine capacity, is there idle vaccine capacity available out there? Um, what, do you, what do you see as the current situation globally? In other words, is there that ability to take advantage uh, of of this, were this to were this to pass, yeah, that there is production capacity idle. There is production capacity that is currently not used for making uh, COVID nineteen vaccines. Several companies have been very vocal about that. They they've they've been open. They've commented on that um, in the media. Some of them are are large manufacturers. Teva in Israel is a is is a good example. Uh, the company has for several months now tried to obtain licenses to produce vaccines without success and, and has has announced that it would it would stop it would stop doing that. There's a manufacturer in, in Bangladesh there's there's one in Canada that has now suggested to the Canadian government that it moves on its on its access to medicines uh, framework under a under a compulsory license, and there are many more. Is there enough to produce the eleven billion? Probably not. No one really has a complete picture of how much manufacturing capacity there might be. Um, but what um, what we do know is that. It, it will be very difficult to scale. It will be very difficult to build if we don't have the commitment of the transfer of the IP and the technology. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. Why don't we conclude with with this question? What you, you've been, as you mentioned, you've been in this for for thirty years, focusing on access to medicines and and public health globally. What do you foresee coming next? Do you expect countries to fall in line with the United States? Do you think? The, the, the kind of timelines that, that you were mentioning that are so critical to ensuring that this moves forward and has a real impact on, on so many lives is, is a likelihood. Um, how do you see this playing out? I think something will have to give because after the Biden administration's decision to support a, a waiver for vaccines, that 
that double no position of the companies has become untenable. They can't say no to a voluntary licensing mechanism and no to um, to the TRIPS waiver. Um, I and I, I think countries will get together and 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 start to, to start to look at at proposals to 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 find to find a solution. I I hope and expect companies uh, to do the same. Uh, this is not only because the political pressure is now really really mounting, but also because the uh, the realization that this is a crisis of unprecedented uh, uh, size. And uh, that this pandemic cannot be resolved um, at a country basis or a regional basis. You can vaccinate everyone in North America, but if you don't vaccinate at the same time, everyone the globe over, that does not mean all that much. And I think that political leaders increasingly begin to uh, begin to understand that. So there's also an element of self-interest that may drive the change in this um, in this field. So we'll, we'll we'll probably going to see some COVID nineteen exceptionalism, so to speak, um, and 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 carve outs to uh, to to advance and to create the, the capacity that is uh, that is necessary. It's telling in a way that um, the U.S. is supporting a waiver for vaccines, but not for therapeutics and diagnostics. Uh, whose access in other countries are of much less relevance to the interest of the uh, of the United States. So I, I think the change will come from the vaccine, the need to vaccinate everyone. Ellen, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Michael. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The LawBites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. <laughs>